Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow, I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Out of Patience. We got a great show for you today, but first, please be sure to check out The Cancer Mavericks, our groundbreaking documentary series about the last five decades and the origin story of cancer advocacy itself. Subscribe to The Cancer Mavericks wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today live in studio, Alex Fair, a guy I met many, many years ago when I went off to do nonprofit stuff. He was at the forefront of what we then called the digital healthcare revolution. And he started this incubator called MedStarter, and it was the first innovation crowdfunding platform. Those are words that we kind of take for granted today. Innovation, crowdfunding, did a great job identifying and seeing the future. And he's still here today. He joins me live again in studio to talk about what the hell just happened, what he's up to, and how he sees the universe changing in the world of increased patient voice in the culture. And running Shotgun, Aaron Michael is the founder of Patience. Com. That's a thing. I'm upset. I don't know about it. Patience.com. What a domain to own. He is just really cool down to earth, and he's building new technologies that actually help the patient experience, which for me is just like when you go to a doctor's office, how does it suck less? That's his deal. This show's got great chemistry, folks. Enjoy. We are here. Oh, my God. We're live. I love having regular people. Eye contact. Seriously, eye contact. Do I have to? I mean, I, mean, I... got to face the radio, but <laughs> eye contact. Alex Fair, Aaron Michael Buch. We will ignore the last name for the rest of the show, but you can Google him, and he will be on LinkedIn as well. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. Show. Thanks for having us. So for the sake of the listeners, Alex Fair and I go back into the wonderment of the pre-internet universe of AOL CDs and DVDs. I would say colorful MacBooks before there were colorful MacBooks. And uh, I was going to say fax machines, but they're still fucking fax machines. We're going to talk about why there are still fax machines in general. Especially especially in healthcare. And, uh, and Aaron, you kind of showed up today. Alex, for the listeners, Alex met Aaron this morning on Tinder. <laughs> and it's kind of how I roll healthcare tinder and awesome. said why don't you show up to the show so you know 
Aaron was a rando until 10 minutes ago, and he's a super cool guy. I'm really excited to have him on the show. He's got a BA in the arts and communications, so we're going to bond over that stuff. And he has a, a connection to Ithaca, so there's a Wegmans thing, and Alex went to Rensselaer, which I'll never spell the right way. But, you know, we could start with Wegmans. Or, but anyway, I'm excited to just have a random conversation, see where it goes. And my first question to Alex, so you started MedStarter. Were you the first person to drop vowels? <laughs> no, we uh, we took the lead from Tumblr. Tumblr, and actually, the original version of Kickstarter didn't have any either. Did it really? No. Wait, so they put the vowel back in? They bought the vowel. The e the e apparently stands for expensive. In my case, elusive. The person who actually owns that e doesn't respond to emails. But I send somebody to her house; she doesn't answer the door. So yeah, it's it's hard to get a, a domain that somebody else is squatting on. I don't know how you knew that, but well I, done. I, I got people in Paris. There you go. Well, well, that's the beauty, right? When you have something, when you have a product that works, it ends up not really mattering what yeah, it's called. You own Patience.com. That is How true. How the hell did that's... you get Patience.com with vowels? With all the vowels. Well, we actually had Have Patience first. That was the that was the original name, Have Patience. We thought it would be clever. Um, mm, not everyone got it. Clever play on, on the word patience. Yeah, well, I've never heard of anybody doing that. Yeah. So That's called a homonym. Right. Which you know about, so we share the yes. we share the double entendre patience, and it ended up being something where we decided um, it felt better to have the real thing, and so we went after it. It was a long, long process. I've done a lot of domain purchasing. Was it squatted in like like Malau or something? Some 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 Southwest Pacific island. <laughs> It's funny you say that because it actually was owned by somebody in some Caribbean place. That is true. However, we worked with a guy who ended up being really nice. And the first conversation was, what do you want to do with it? Which I thought was very interesting versus how much you want to pay for it. And we told him about what we wanted to do. And the price dropped dramatically from where we thought it would be and from what we kind of originally talked about. It was still very expensive, uh, but we think it was a great investment for us as the brand, obviously. But um, yeah, I mean, the guy was mostly about what are you going to do with it? And I want to see it go to something that's going to be good use. So when we pitched him sort of what our concept was and he liked it and he did a great deal with us. So so shameless plug for a new show we've launched on our script media called Heart of Healthcare with Alex and I, our friend Heli Teco. I looked at heartofhealthcare.com, $134,000 to buy it. So we registered heartofhealthcarepod.com for $9. And there you go. Got to like the price. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm looking at like a before and after. Like, so we, we go back to the mid-2000s. You're a relatively new organization that came out in the wake of all the shit we had to go through. And there's still shit to deal with. But we, you were the first. I think you were the first. We met at the Health 2 Universe early on. You were in New York. I think I spoke at one of your first events with Kenny Kenny Kane. Oh, Kenny Kane. Yeah. Okay. He's a dad now, by the way. I know. I, I follow him on everything. <laughs> on everything, because he's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, he is. And crowdsourcing. Like, that word wasn't a word. Like, people invented, like, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing. That was like when um, the microfunding idea first started up to help other people long before, uh, uh, what is it, the, the one everyone uses when they're sick? GoFundMe. GoFundMe. Long before that was a thing. I mean, you didn't get that from Kickstarter. Like, where did you well, get no. the idea from? So, no, on, on, on April 6, 2012, uh, the Jobs Act passed, which sort of messed up some parts of crowdfunding, but it, it also enabled lots of others. So, I, I like a week later, I was running this thing called the Healthcare, these all hashtags, Healthcare Gamification Flash Mob. 
it's a lot of syllables. It's a lot of hashtags. But, you know, one of the Zynga guys had come into healthcare and he wanted to uh, do something on his own. He wanted to angry birdify healthcare? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he had already done that for some other company and then was disappointed when they were selling the data to pharma. And so so he's like, I'm going to go do something else. And uh, so he, you know, I'm going to move to New York. So I said, that's great, Thor. Come on over. And, uh, and we had really great night, ping pong, all sorts of silly games. And uh, by 5.30 in the morning, we had an idea called H Kickstarter where the H was silent. It was just sort of a joke. Uh, but they were we were going to, you know, create a crowdfunding site to fund a startup I had been working on for years, which is one I had when I first met you, Faircare. Faircare, uh, yeah. And my name is Fair. Alex B. Fair. Very creative. Yeah, very creative. Thanks. It was Priceline for Healthcare. And we had helped millions of people, but we hadn't really made any money on it. So I was like, oh, let me go crowdfund it. And Kickstarter had said, mm, no, we don't really want to be involved in anything in that space. And uh, Indiegogo really wasn't a thing. The only project I could find in Indiegogo was uh, a movie about how much the healthcare system sucked right. called Doctored. So I bought that and I sort of studied it a little bit. And I turned to my co-founder, his name is actually Mike Pence, different Mike Pence. And uh, Not that Mike Pence, folks. Not that Mike Pence. He was actually the original developer of Kickstarter. So we knew the Kickstarter founders, Barry right. and Yancey. Anyway, so I said, Mike, how long until we can get our own Kickstarter, whatever we're going to call it. And uh, he said, well, I got one right here. So about a week later, and at the last minute, we changed the name to MedStarter. And it was just a goof. And we put two projects on the site, Fair Care, and that was my old company. And like 70,000 people came to the site and a ton of them funded MedStarter. One of them, my cousin, you know, put some money into Fair Care. So <laughs> that's the first rule of crowdfunding. <laughs> I know, it doesn't really count. The first rule of crowdfunding is if people aren't going to pay for it even before you build it or after you build it, two years after you build it, then you probably shouldn't do it. You might want to go back to the drawing board. So we did that and we switched team over to MedStarter. And we had been running a community in New York called Health 2.0 New York City for a couple of years by that point. So we had a large community of healthcare innovation enthusiasts like myself and like you, Matthew, um, and like you, Aaron. Uh, and they're the guys and girls who who put money down and to pay for our first servers and to pay for more development. And uh, and that's how MedStarter really got started. We had a ton of news stories about us and podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Question for Aaron uh, with, a, with a backstory. So when... Stupid Cancer got started in 2007. It was off the heels of Livestrong's Young Adult Alliance Initiative, which brought together hundreds of people and stakeholders that were like, why can't we give a shit about Gen X too? But what I learned there was that the words young adult cancer had never been put together before in the annals of medicine, no codes, no nothing for that. And the stuff that we struggled with 10, 15, 20 years ago is very different now. So you have this organization, this wonderful platform, patients.com. What have we done right to make this suck less for you as a platform? Wow. Validate uh, our suffering. I will, yeah, I can do I can <laughs> Good do luck I can, with that. <laughs> <laughs> I only speak the truth. Um, what I think that's done right is number one, it seems like, you know, there's we're talking about things that we actually care about. And that's that's the number one thing, right? Uh any anything that's just not you know, entirely what you're, what you live and breathe is just not going to be anything that you can ever do successfully. I, I've tried it. <laughs> I think we all have at some point. 100%. And, and I think that the, you know, when, when it, when you get to that point where it feels effortless to come up with content, when it feels good and you're happy to talk about those things, that's when you know you're in a really good place. So I think that's something that you guys have done really well. And that's something that, you know, there's a ton of people who follow, obviously both of you and, 
that's because the content's good. They're coming back for the content. And we live in a world where it's constant. It's constantly, uh, you know, everywhere you go, we got, uh, I get my, uh, my iWatch behind my phone, behind my MacBook, behind my tablet, right? There's a, there's a ton of stuff. So if the content's there, people are going to come back. And I think the content we were talking about is really important. And that's what's going to, that's what's always going to be number one. Content is king. We know that. And that's what I think you've done really well. So another one of the shameless plugs of Offscript Media, we recently launched a docu-series called The Cancer Mavericks, which is about the people, not the disease, who forced the government, got rid of toxic masculinity, changed breast cancer best practices, established all these guidelines and standards, forced the budgets to exist. And the fight was very different in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And even for me, diagnosed in 96 during, you know, we call it Clinton cancer era, you know, when there was kind of nothing for you at all. But I feel like when you become a patient, right, you, no one wakes up and says, I can't wait to get on Katruda and listen to that Katruda podcast one day. That doesn't happen, right? You're entering a, a marketplace you don't pre-research to care about. So you're at the mercy of the navigation potential in that space, right? And back then you kind of just died. Today there's great choices, but how do you square the circle on modern day access and awareness of shit in that store versus market access gaps and making doctors aware of these things and who's responsible to tell you the innocent bystander in the shit store? I think that the average patient's very, very confused. Where do I go? What do I do? Who do I trust? The more we do research studies on this for our company, the more we find out every day people trust less and less and less. Everything that went on politics-wise in the last couple of years, regardless, doesn't matter what side you're on, people are not trusting anything. It's, it's happening all over the place. It's a real problem in healthcare. It's a serious issue. People don't know. Do they, are they going to, you know, we know a little bit more about this on the back end than probably the average person. I'm sure a lot of your listeners understand this concept, but am I going to this surgery center because the doctor is getting a kickback because he works, because he owns a piece of it? Or am I, is that really the best place for me to go? Um, is this, is this, you know, are we, are we on a population health model? Are we on, you know, uh, any of these, any specific, you know, paid for service models and how does that all translate, right? The average patient, I mean, it takes a whole career to understand that. That's an entire career let alone, you know, just the average patient. All right, someone give Alex a cookie. Are you ready to answer the question? Yeah, but give, give, make it easy for me. All right. <laughs> Small words. How do I know what to do when I get diagnosed with cancer? Oh, you have no idea. You have no fucking clue. Hey, it was that simple. You have to trust the doctor or the internet. Which goes back to this whole value versus volume-based care, which is acronym jargon shit for who gets paid to tell you what to think, going back to like the emerging what was it called? Emerging Med Days, where they biased their clinical trial findings based on who was sponsoring them mm -hmm. and made you grossly unaware that there was just a, a lack of egalitarian democracy in your choice of trial. Like, are we still there? Or the percentage that it, you, yeah. you have to only be a certain percentage right. of the of the actual uh, pre-existing approval of anything, all these trials, right, before you could already be approved for it, which is a huge issue. <laughs> So to answer your question, Matt, it is a total shit show when it comes to what a patient has to do and how they take charge of their care. Like the doctor, it's really kind of not their job. I, I know this might be controversial, but it's kind of not their job to figure out every single fact about your care. I know it seems like that's the person it's supposed to be, but honestly, they're not with you 100% of the time. 
the most successful patients, and I mean people like Matt, people who survive, right? They do their research. They track all of the reactions. I mean, I know I got uh, chronic Lyme disease for, and I had it for like 10 years, and it took me a long time to hack and to figure out what would make me healthy. And so I tracked all the 25 nonspecific symptoms like headaches and backaches and things like that. And uh, <laughs> these were super fun. Uh, extreme anger uh, moments, like where I'd like throw a conference table at my boss. Yeah, that happened. Um, so uh, so only after I started tracking them and looking at all the different antibody combinations did I finally figure out how to get my number of what I call Lyme incidents down to from 17 a week. And yeah, and the conference table is just one. Uh, down to like three or four, and then how to take it be below, you know, one. So my normalization was like 1.7 in that math. And, and yes, I did all this math as I was going through, but that is how you have to do it as a patient. And then you have to find the secret information. But so you're proactive I, with that. That's that's you being you. That's, that's not the average person. Every patient, I mean, as Robin Starr from, Mar from Marion says, you, you got to be the CEO of your own care. You have to really sort of, you know, do it. But and you use Dr. Google, you know, you know, find out the information, go to message boards. I remember when we were going through IVF, I did like six rounds of IVF to have my two wonderful children. You know, there was a message board and I learned more from other patients peer to peer, things like what Je Jen Honor Jeff is doing, you know, uh, with Savvy Co-op and, and so many uh, patient activists have really sort of made this information much more accessible uh, on a peer to peer basis. Um, so anyway, so I, I think that you're the captain of your care. Um, and Yes, you can get advice from doctors, you can get diagnostics, you can find out all of the information, but at the end of the day, you're the one that's with you all the time. So when a PA in my world-class Lyme disease doctor's office said, look, look, I like you, Alex, so here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that the way to really get that all the way down to make it so you don't have Lyme disease anymore is just clean living. So I stopped drinking. I stopped smoking. You know, I lost weight. None of the intravenous drugs, none of the women. No, I'm kidding. Those last two aren't really. Um, <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> hey, now. Hey, now. Anyway, so uh, so no. I And so about 10 years later, I, I was completely symptom-free. I could drink again. Wait, you mean living a healthy lifestyle makes bad things go away? I know, right? It's a, you know, you, you'd think that, that it would this be- This is the radio, but I'm doing the head explosion thing. <laughs> well, I'm not saying it's going to work for cancer, but, you know, right. for, for the last bit of Lyme disease, it definitely helped. All right. Is it, is it fair? Again- No pun intended. No pun intended. Is Alex fair? Alex be fair. Is it fair to conflate- the be your own advocate trope with everyone is born with chutzpah. <laughs> um, there's several words in that sentence that I didn't understand. Remember, I went to RPI, which is engineering <laughs> and science school. We're not really big on words. Not everyone's born. Can you make it simpler? <laughs> not everyone is born with moxie, with 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 precociousness, with chutzpah, with chutzpah, chutzpah. right? I, I say this yes. all the time in my show. Your, yeah. How do you just be your own advocate when you're not everyone is that by congenital nature and not of only their that, being. we want to trust the doctors right we want to trust the white coats we want to think that they know everything but honestly they've got seven minutes on average with you per six months if you're lucky right most of us don't even go to the doctor that often so at the end of the day you're the one who's with you you see your symptoms you see what's happening and if you're not going to do it for yourself who will Thank you. 
back with our guest after the break. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Alex Fair. <laughs> no, yes, you, Matthew Zachary. Yeah, you just made some great points, and I want to go back to Aaron and your business. Uh, I mean, again, it's uh, not really a plug for patients.com, but it's I love the domain. You have the domain. Yeah, we do. Why do you think we invited him? Yeah, it's all about <laughs> the domains. Your business model seems to be a combination of helping doctors get more patients to their clinic, but at the same time, helping patients know what the fuck is going on. Right. Right. So where is your, how do you bifurcate that? Another big word. Alex, you know the word? To separate into two. He's, he's yes. A, he's a human dictionary. What is he win, Chuck? <laughs> <laughs> so what I think is really interesting is that most people, when we talk about physician marketing and, and healthcare marketing, they, they really think about, you know, billboards and TV and all this other stuff and talking about the doctor and, and all those other things about, you know, how great they are. And, and we work with a lot of great doctors. You know, we do. They, they're highly trained. They're some of the top of their field all over the world. Um, but the ads actually, whatever they are, and when we're targeting patients and doing what we do, it's really it's really about empowering the patient. So everything Alex just said about him and how he went about his, and we know, you know, most of your listeners, I'm sure, know your story and how aggressive you had to be and you had to fight to live literally. It's, you know, yours is the extreme side of it, but a guy living with back pain who has very serious back pain, they don't live a life. They live in a chair right? It's, that's their life. They can't move. And they become very, you know, de-incentivized to, is that the word? De I'm going to you. Disincentivized? Disincentivized? Should I have said this? Dear Oxford <laughs> English Dictionary. Dear word deans. This, yeah. <laughs> they become very, they, they don't do it. It's that simple. They give up. That's the simple thing. They give up. And a lot of people do that because they don't understand. How do I take the next, next step forward if I don't know what the next step forward is? So a lot of the advertising we end up doing 
really is about empowering the patient. You know, we did a big campaign called, you know, never let an injury steal your passion. It was all about focusing on the passions of the patient. I think that's a very strange place to be. You know, from the data that we have, it's not so much about, you know, do they care that he went to Tufts? Do they care that he's trained at all these, you know, at the Cleveland Clinic and he was the top of his class and did all this stuff? People care, but they're way more interested on who did, you know, who did, you know, Conor McGregor's surgery. That's more interesting to them. Wait, do you consider what you do more on the consumer facing side, like protecting? I mean, the word patient can be thrown about here and there. Sure. At the end of the day, we're voting American citizens and we're consumers that need to buy things that we want to buy or that we have to buy that we hoped we never had to buy. So when you're going into some kind of procedure, whether it's, you know, on the um, on the pain scale of one or 300, hopefully it's lower. It's a primary care. It's some quickly treatable triage thing. How do you factor in the right ways to tell the right messages to the right people? So there's two there's two pieces we always talk about that are really important. We have a section called immediate action patients, and there's a group of people who are immediate action, and then there's a group of delayed action patients. As you may imagine, the majority of people are in the delayed action category, meaning they're putting something off. We don't know what it is. Typically, and it could, it could range from anything. A lot of times it's things like back pain because that's very common. Um, it could be a knee injury, knee pain. People will do anything to avoid seeing the doctor, right? Or paying attention to their diabetes. They, they will do anything to, to avoid like the black plague. They will hang from inversion tables. They'll try mattresses. They'll try every type of recliner chair that they can before they go because everyone has a horror story that they've heard in the past. And that's interesting to talk about uh, today would be where where are we in that? So we're, we are starting to see a little bit of a shift with that, you know, as as more things, be, you know, more studies come out and more things start to be a little more commonplace, minimally invasive starts to be a little more commonplace and all these things. But when we go back to immediate action versus delayed action, immediate is you fell down the stairs, something horrible happened, God forbid it happens, and you're going to the ER, it's immediate action. You're not marketing to that person. That person has to go in, they're going to get who's on call. The delayed action is the guy who trips down the stairs, it's not that bad, has a neck problem, and six, seven years, he deals with it. And he deals with it with opioids. He deals with it with maybe PT, has 10 different people tell him 10 different things and eventually gives up. And then he goes into that cycle like we talked about. Right. And that's where we find ourselves trying to, there's the biggest cesspool of patients for physicians in that pool. And that is a problem with the healthcare system. That's a huge problem that they're, that they can't get to what they need. And they don't know. We're not training people to understand what they need. But then we look back to Alex. You took charge of the your demons. He is an and anomaly. Were, are you an, are you like an N of one, or is this? I mean, again, in your experience, is this N of one? I, I believe he is. No, I mean, with seventy three thousand opioid deaths, you know, last year. I mean, actually, the year before. You know, that cesspool is. You know, it's got a lot of dying and people. it's not so much to say that. You know, it's not the classic lazy American thing. It really, I mean, is that part of it? No, there's look, there's look, some part of that. Look, my cousin, my cousin Dennis, when he had failed back surgery syndrome and got hooked on opioids with the normal course of, you know, sure. of, of opioids, you know, he didn't have the mechanism. Even though his dad was a doctor, he had us advising him. You know, his last texts were to, to my brother, you know, about, 
about uh, innovations and healthcare and things like that. And he, you know, he'd been in, he'd been in the medical it, field forever. It's a hard place to get out of. That's the point. It's a very hard place to get out. How do you get yes. out of that? How do you dig yourself out of that? Especially when, you know, even when my, my, my first, my first child was born, we had an issue in the hospital itself on that day. We had four doctors telling us four different things. That's not an uncommon thing to happen. And so you really do have to be like that. And I think that's something that the buyer beware concept is just not something that's commonplace enough today. I think it'll become increasingly more commonplace, hopefully, as we see the onset of all these review sites and stuff like that and people, you know, really taking ownership of it. And it's something that you have to say, hey, this is going to suck. It's not going to be you go to your doctor and everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows. You have to just say, this is going to suck a little bit and you're going to have to hear some stuff that might be right and you're going to have to figure out if that's right to the best of your ability, take it with a grain of salt and figure out what's best like you guys did, like a lot of patients do. And I think that's something that the average patient doesn't think they have to do. And I don't necessarily fault them for that. Like you said, it's, look, it's I mean, tough. Look, when I was diagnosed with diabetes in 2012, I, you know, I used to teach pathology. I understand all this stuff, but I totally ignored it. I totally did not do anything about it. I, I weighed like 40, 50 pounds heavier than I do now. And, you know, I called it the slow suicide of unhappiness. I mean, because fact is that I wasn't taking care of it because I wasn't happy. I wasn't sort of thinking long term about my kids and things like that. So at the end of the day, I didn't take charge. You know, fast forward three years later, I did take charge. I lost the weight. You know, I got my A1C back below where it's supposed to be. And, you know, I've got no diabetic symptoms now. Um, and I'm not knocking on wood because it's not luck because I finally started paying attention to it and I started doing it. And, and we all go through those things. We don't want to look at the hard things. You know, we are the captains of our care. We need to take ownership. And yes, it is hard to look at it. I know I've been there. I've done that. You know, Lyme disease, you know, that example, that story was something that was proximal. I was 30 and suddenly I felt 40, you know, but diabetes is, is insidious, right? You think you're fine, but then suddenly you walk around in the snow and your toes hurt for three weeks. And you're like, what is going on? So, I mean, and, it, and it's, you know, the same behaviors you did your whole life. Suddenly you have to change. And that is not that easy to do. So, you know, yes, my endocrinologist tried to tell me a few things, my care plan called me and texted me and told me stuff. But until I actually started to see some progress and I started to lose some weight, until I really cared about living those extra 10 years I would have lost, um, only then did I really start paying attention to my care. So, so the, the progress thing is the most important thing. I mean, you said a lot of interesting things progress? there. What progress. Uh, right, they're so measuring many, measuring your progress. Well, when you said you said not until I started seeing measurable, notable, understandable mm -hmm. field well, of progress, that, that was probably misspeaking. I would say that what really happened was that I cared that I was going to live. But the progress doesn't hurt. <laughs> no, we don't know. I, I so so I, I'm really big fan of what I call hypothalamus hacking. Right, you know, you can do all sorts of things to make yourself happy checklists, making to-do lists, you know, watching your weight. So I, you know, I, I call it an oscillation fascination, right? So when you lose weight, you know, you'll be going down two pounds, up two pounds, up down two pounds. But as long as you can track that progress, you can see that the chart is going down, then you can say, okay, I'm making progress, right? right. So you're absolutely right. Progress is a big thing, but first you have to decide, I want to live. Yeah. That's interesting. What we did before we started the company was I was a videographer. I just, you know, barely understood how to operate a camera. I worked with a doctor. He said, hey, 
Um, you're, you work in marketing at, I worked at Hackensack Meridian, which is now called, I'm sure you know. And um, uh, he said, can you shoot a, a video for us? I said, uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I know how to do that. Hundred percent. So we shot some, uh, we shot some uh, horrific, hor horribly filmed and produced like videos. Blair Witch Project level it was, quality. It was, it was bad. Yeah, like pretty much everything you see on Midsummer TV. It's not, it, <laughs> it's not good. But you know what? It's funny. It never ended up mattering. They were like, "This is great." The patients like, you know, and the pa people who watched it were like, "All right, they get the message." Then we figured out finally how to use a camera. Fast forward seven, eight years, we did over three thousand. So we talked to a lot of. Patients and we're like, why did you? I can't tell you how many patients started the conversation with. We walk in their house. How you doing? We're here to shoot the video. Yada yada yada. And they're saying, um, would it be would it be interesting to show you like in the video where I tried to commit suicide? And we would go, what? I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. And um, I'll never forget the first time that happened. There was there was first of hundreds, and um, they were like, oh, you know, I figured that would be you know good for. And I'm like. This is this is serious. It, it hit a new level for me. The first time someone said, "All right, I'm gonna take you down to the basement and show you the beam," and we're sitting there going, "Oh my god!" And so we're we're sitting there like, "All right, this guy had a spine problem. He got it fixed. He feels better. He's running again. He's at the gym." No, it really transformed. Like, what are these people going through? Right. I had no idea, you know. And how broken is that system, right? And 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 all of that, where it's like, what's happening? You know what I mean? And so. That was just the day where we were like, there's a lot going on here. And we ended up having, it was just like, we used to take bets. Like, you know, we're going to end up crying on this testimonial today, which we didn't expect. <laughs> and people, and then the, the husband would come in and, oh my God, you wouldn't believe uh, who this, I didn't even know who I was married to. And it's like, and all of this really revolves around this world, right? Of like, where do you go? Who do you do? Who do you talk to? Who do you trust? And these are people who did not see progress. You know what I'm saying? They didn't see that. If they had seen a little bit, if they had someone say, if we can try this, we could try that, you know? I want to wrap up with some optimism. Well, as the optimism as, yeah, is what, tell me, tell me, Tell me something the positive. Op the optimism is that that these are testimonials. So they're ha the patients, they, they did a lot. Everyone we interviewed won. Right, they got to the other side because of good doctors out there, and there are good doctors out there. There's a lot of them. We know this, and there's a lot of these population health models, which is a whole other discussion. But they're focusing on trying to get to wellness and pre-diabetic things before they happen. And right. There are these things that are happening that whether who's pushing them, you know, we don't know who does it. Sometimes it's a hospital, it's an organization, but there's a lot of there are a lot of things like that happening that I hope. And I pray, and I think we are going to head in that direction that we're going to see people incentivizing those good behaviors and incentivizing those things and have more transparency. And that's what we need to have happen. Alex, you invested in a lot of companies. Do you have any one particular case data that stands out as, man, this one made a dent in the universe? Well, uh, you know, the biggest, I wouldn't even say dent, I was going to, I'm going to say like it turned a car into an accordion which is not a fun thing. Um, you know, to Aaron's point about progress and transparency of the data. So we have one company called AlertG, uh, A-L-E-R-T-G-Y. And this started when, when the founder's wife was in hypoglycemic shock, catatonic, 
staring, couldn't wake her up. And he's an engineer. And he's like, why would this possibly happen? How could she do this? And how could she not know and not have some orange juice or whatever? And I wish that I would have been alerted. So alert G is about an alert for glucose. And so he invented a watch. Well, at the time, it was like the size of a refrigerator. But he invented what's now a watch that uses radio frequency, no needles. And for 300 bucks a year and thereabouts, you can actually have a CGM for a pre-diabetic for anybody, for the half a billion people in the world who actually have diabetes or pre-diabetic, you can actually go and and look at your watch and get an alert on your phone and tell the people that you love and that love you that, hey, I, I need I need a cracker. I need some sugar, mm-hmm. right? So this totally changes the game. Right now, if you tried to get a Dexcom or a Medtronic or Abbott, um, you know, a CGM, it's, you know, 10 to 50 bucks a day. This is... Pennies a day. Well, when right? you said three hundred a year, that that was shocking. Well, that, you buy the watch incredible. for three sixty, yeah, and then you you know you pay for a service, but you don't even really need to pay for the service. But the thing is that they they just got it down to the watch level. It's actually just as accurate as all those CGM leaders. Doesn't have a needle at all. Just uses radio frequency. And here's the best thing: you can tune it for things other than glucose. You could tune it for PSA. You could tune it for COVID. Oh. You could tune it for different things. So. So they did their first trials at the Cleveland Clinic and another uh, company called Complete Care. They're doing their next round of trials. We're actually doing a dog and pony show for them uh, a couple of weeks to bring uh, some of the bigs in there and some big investors. And, and it's really exciting. So to me, that is going to change the entire paradigm for not just diabetes, but for, for lots of things, for cancer, for um, cardiovascular disease. I mean, if you can measure cholesterol with this thing. Um, so anyway, so so that I think is the hope. And and if you look at a lot of the companies, whether it's Miami that uh, treats 67 different autoimmune diseases, lupus, RA, long COVID, they're doing a study with long COVID in Mount Sinai right now, your coach, which brings fitness coaches in because like what you're talking about is how do you how do you really motivate yourself? Well, the doctors don't have time. It's kind of not their job. So, so, so do you think technology will catch up to us? It's right not at just the right technology. Time? It's also a different care paradigm. Right. Right. So you have value based care, which where and, and accountable care organizations and all of these different things that are no longer being paid on a fee for service basis, but mm. are being paid to keep you well. So if you have a red light, green light and, and yellow light. Right. And if you're driving, you know, you go faster in the, red, in the yellow light so you don't hit the red light. But if you if it's your health and you're in the yellow light, you're pre-diabetic, wouldn't it be great to get back to green. Right. So that's a great metaphor. I love it. It's actually from my friend Rick Goldman. Reminds me of like Go Dog Go by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> you know, if Dr. Seuss was our doctor, I think we'd all be a lot happier. You know, on that note, we have to wrap, but I think we just finished our first episode of MedStarter, <laughs> the podcast series, Spaceballs, the flamethrower. Like, there's <laughs> got to be some version of that. Look, this is a very compelling conversation, the rabbit hole that could be discussed ad nauseum. Absolutely. <laughs> but I think we could come back and really look at solutions. My listeners like to hear that there are actually success stories, actual progress. And there so are. Many. And, there so are. Many. and that's really important. So- Alex Fair, Hendrick Hudson High School graduate, according to LinkedIn, and no other credentials whatsoever. What? No, no. Clubhouse fangirl? I'll give you that, too. <laughs> anyway, founder and CEO of MedStarter, managing partner of MedStarter Ventures. Super cool. Aaron Michael Bush. Buch. 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 Aaron <laughs> Michael. <laughs> have two first names <laughs> like me. Aaron, Aaron Michael. Michael. I like I'm this. I'm to you. Aaron Michael. Yes. Founder of Patience.com. And when you're back next time, this whole brewery thing you're working on, I got to know about that. That's a great story. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Gents. More to come. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Matt. 
That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seeley, Jen Oranja, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.